also draw your attention, uh, next Sunday is Easter, by the way, so those of you who like to calendar things, next Sunday is Easter. I want to draw your attention to a new element we're adding. We have our three services, 7, 15, 9, and 1045, but I think there's also an element that I was never exposed to in my Christian life until this church, and that's sunrise. There's something about sunrise on Easter. You know, it's that moment in between Good Friday where Jesus was crucified and Easter where everyone celebrates. But sunrise is that moment where we remember those women who went to the tomb to pay their respects to a man who promised them everything, to a man who really, there was their hopes and their dreams died with Jesus. And they went there in mourning. And they left in celebration. There's something about sunrise that we can maybe remember. And sometimes when we go to Jesus, we go lacking faith of what he has done already. So I want to invite you, uh, you know, we used to have a sunrise service and it got too big and our neighbors complained and, and so we're trying something different this year, it's a prayer walk. I'd like to invite you, join me here six o'clock to where you can walk through on your own with your family from station to station where we can remember and maybe experience a little bit of what those ladies experienced that sunrise morning. It'll be in the back of our campus and so It'll be by, we'll begin to hear the birds waking up and the stream going through. We had rain, so, so there's still water back there. <laughs> and be able to have a moment, just you and the Lord, before the pomp and circumstance of Easter. I invite you, have a moment at sunrise. I know some of you are like, Brian, six o'clock's not going to happen. It'll be open all Easter. The prayer walk will be open all day on Sunday. I'll encourage you. Maybe consider showing up 6 a.m. Let the kids sleep. You'll be back before they wake up. <laughs> They'll never know you were gone. Perfectly consider joining me at 6. Next Sunday, 6 a.m. We can maybe remember that powerful moment Easter morning. You know, as we're going into the text this week, I was wondering if you ever had a, a moment where you felt like life was just coming apart at the seams. You had everything planned out. You had this clear expectation of what you felt like life should be. But when you're sitting in the midst of it, it just feels like it's unraveling piece by piece. There's been a number of times in my life that I've planned everything out. The vacations, plans for my children, you know, anniversaries with Gretchen, whatever it is, I've made these uh, amazing plans only to find out that that statement is true. Best laid plans often go awry. I think that's how people often see the last week of Jesus. The last week of Jesus, I mean, everything was going great before the last week. I mean, Jesus was healing people. He was feeding thousands of people with just loaves and fish. People were amazed at his teaching. Some people were even walking 100 miles just for the chance to hear him speak. 
I mean, people were pouring out everything they had into Jesus. But then the last week happened. You know, the first day of the last week, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and crowds of people welcomed their Messiah into Jerusalem. They waved palm branches. They were screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna. But we realized something was going to happen when instead of Jesus going to protest the palaces of man, instead he went to inspect the temple of God. And the first day ended with Jesus just turning around and going home. The first day we knew something was up. The second day Jesus woke up, he cursed a fig tree, he judged the temple with the same reason and for the same truth. Even though they projected health on the outside, even though they were leafy and boasting as if they were producing fruit, when they were inspected, they were empty. It was a great reminder that God doesn't judge a life on the outside. He judges it based on the heart. He doesn't judge a home based on the beauty on the outside, but the depth that it has inside. Jesus doesn't judge a ministry by its size or its campus or its financial stability. Jesus, Jesus judges a ministry by its fruit. After the second day, we begin to get uncomfortable. But in the third day, something happened. Jesus gave his clearest teaching yet to where he judged the temple, the temple, the, the dwelling place of God, the instrument of worship for his people, the city on a hill. It will be judged, it will be destroyed, it's cursed, it's gone. <laughs> And when his disciples are asking, when? When's it going to happen? How's it going to happen? What's going on? Jesus doesn't answer those questions, and instead he gives a series of lessons, a series of truths to make sure that his disciples can be fruitful while they wait. And the fourth day came. After everything that Jesus had done for those first days, Mark helps us to see there were two very vivid and real responses. One response was, was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, who brought an alabaster jar, likely holding her dowry, the most expensive thing she owned. And instead of uncorking the top and dripping it out, she impatiently broke the neck and lavishly poured it out on Jesus. Everything that she had, she poured on to Jesus because he was everything she needed. That was one response. The other response was Judas. He was one of the 12. He was in the inner circle of Jesus. He was a friend of God. But after everything he'd seen, Instead of pouring himself on to Jesus and trusting his Savior, he decided to betray him for 30 pieces of silver for the cost of a slave. He was preparing to betray Jesus. And after those first four days, I can understand how people might feel like 
the plan and purposes of Jesus are unraveling. I mean, after three years of ministry, after all of his miracles, after all of his teaching, after all of the compassion, after all of the power, it all comes down to this last week and it seems like everything is coming apart at the seams, but that's the great thing about the fifth day. And what I love about this next passage, because Mark wants to make sure we understand that Jesus is in control this entire time And in fact, he knows everything that has happened and is still going to happen. Well, I'd like to show you the fifth day. It's just when you think the plans of Jesus are unraveling. Jesus is complete control and knows what he's doing. And if he knows what he's doing back then, perhaps that's a truth that we can hold in our lives still today. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, Gospel of Mark, second book of the New Testament, Matthew, then Mark. If you hit Luke, you went too far, just flip to the left. You'll look super spiritual the more pages you turn, so just have at it. Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Here's how Mark starts it. Verse 12. It says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? They said, pause for a moment. Mark gives us this setting. It, we know it's the season of Passover when Jesus came in, beginning of the week. It was that Passover season. Passover again is that celebration of the deliverance of God. If you remember back when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, Right? And Moses came, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, no, no. We had all those plagues, the final plague. The angel of God was going to come. He's going to take the life of the firstborn. But Moses told his people, on that night, sacrifice an innocent lamb and take its blood and put it on the doorposts of your home. And the judgment of God will pass over. And every year since then, at this time, the people of God have been coming to Jerusalem to remember the deliverance of God and the importance of an innocent lamb giving his life. Man, what a powerful time for Jesus to show up and do this. It's just another reminder that everything has been intricately designed for this day. Everything that Jesus has done has been building up to this moment. Make no mistake, the plan of Jesus isn't unraveling. It's really just beginning. Passover is something that everyone understood. It wasn't something just for the righteous few. This was everyone. Look at what Moses instructed the people way back in Exodus. He said this, even when your children say to you, what does this right mean? Hey, why are we doing this? You shall say, it's Passover It's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes and the people bowed low and worshiped. Everybody knew this was such a thing and so hundreds of thousands of Jews would ascend to Jerusalem for this moment. Everybody celebrated it. Everybody knew it and that's what led the disciples, right, to ask, hey, Jesus, it's today. What's our plan? We don't know what we're eating. We haven't done anything. Hey, Jesus, in the busyness of the week, have you forgotten? 
Jesus wouldn't be the first man in the busyness of his week to forget an important celebration. Am I right, fellas? If it could happen to us, it could happen to Jesus. The disciples are like, where are we going? What are we doing? As if in the busyness of everything, Jesus lost track. But this is what I want, you to sh- want to show you. See, the first thing we're going to see is Jesus knows his plans. Jesus knows his plans. Look, look what happens in verse 13. So all the disciples are like, where are we going? What are we doing? What's the plan? We have no idea. Jesus says this. He sent two of his disciples. So them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. Let me hit pause there for a moment. So much great things in here. So the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, what's the plan? Get to it as if Jesus is going to start rising up. All right, someone call Grubhub. Someone look, who knows? Someone with an Airbnb in Jerusalem. I mean, everyone's clamoring for a spot. There is great hustle and bustle and busyness within the city because you had to eat Passover within the city. I mean, it's just a maddening time. It is not the time last minute to start making plans, but this is what I love about Jesus. He takes two of his disciples and says, relax. Go into town, look for a guy carrying a water jar. Now, something you got to understand. See, in that day and that time, guys didn't carry water jars. That was a woman's work. So some people read this and say, oh, that's what I love about Jesus. He's breaking gender norms. That has nothing to do with gender norms. <laughs> you have a city of Jerusalem filled with people. You know what's going to stand out? A dude carrying water on his head. That's going to stand out. I was thinking this week, those of you who know my sons swim at a club team, a, a swim team in Walnut. Just saying, majority of the team swimming in Walnut's Asian. I'm a leader in the team, and so oftentimes they need to come and talk to me about something, and they're all like, who's Brian? And you know what they say? The tall white guy. (laughs) They don't mean that rude. They're not judging. They're not being disrespectful. It's the easiest way to find Brian. Amidst this team of Asians, there's one dude standing up in the middle. White, balding head. I stand out. And you know what often happens? Who's Brian? Tall white guy. Oh, I know, Brian. I stand out. It's the same thing Jesus is doing here. I'll tell you what. Jesus, what's the plan? What are we doing? Go into town, look for the dude carrying the water bottle. Well, really? Mm-hmm. Look what happens. They find the guy. He says, okay, once you find him, tell him this exact thing. Follow him. When he goes into the house, the teacher wants to know where his room is. I mean, kudos to the disciples for doing it right? And then he says, when you get there, you're going to find this place is completely furnished and ready. A term furnished, it's all arranged, all cleaned up, space is ready to go. It's been vacuumed, it's COVID compliant, everything's set. The space is ready for you. Also, when you go in, it's going to be ready. The spread is already set up, the fridge is full, the drinks are chilled, Everything's ready. You're going to walk in, and you're just going to have to just prep it. Here's a great thing. Look at verse 16. See, Mark wants to make sure we see an important part because he leaves a whole verse for it. He says, the disciples went out, came to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
After all that, Jesus says, I want you to go look for this specific dude, follow him. When you go into the house, say this specific thing, and you're going to find the room completely ready and stocked. Relax, guys. I'm Jesus. I'll handle it. Kudos to the disciples for doing it. I think after three years, they've probably learned, okay, when Jesus tells me to just do specific things, I'll just do that. But every time, they're surprised that Jesus did exactly what he said. Aren't we like that? I was thinking this week, if Jesus knew all of his plans back then, do you think it's possible he still knows all of his plans today? My question for my heart and yours, where do we need to follow the plans of Jesus? You know, some of you in your marriage, and it's marriage is funny because when you get married, your partner is completely perfect in every way. But after a little bit, you begin to see flaws. The reality is they probably hadn't changed at all. You're just beginning to see things that had always been there that you missed before. Oftentimes, marriages find them, themselves in a time of crisis, time of struggle. You know, Jesus gives us plans for that. Ephesians 5 gives us clear directions. Wives, husbands, that's how you serve one another as a commitment to the Lord. This is how you make marriage go. So many times marriages come in, they need help, and so often I bring back to Ephesians 5 where one or both aren't doing their job. Man, I really think marriage would be a different world if we simply just did our job, followed the plans of Jesus. How about parenting? I mean, parenting my four boys, hardest task of my life. You know Jesus gives us directions for that too. Men, don't exasperate your kids. Man, relax, fellas. That's what Jesus said. That's not my word. Jesus is like, don't, don't push them so hard. Don't, like, don't push them to exhaustion. Don't drive. I'm trying to raise men. Jesus is like, I get it. I get it. There's parenting direction in Scripture. How about culture? Man, God has given us clear direction on how to impact and influence culture, how to live within a kooky society like we do. He's given us direction for that. Yet in the midst of our kooky culture, we begin to think, oh no, I don't think God's, I don't think God means that for us. I don't think that's going to work here. No, Brian, our culture is unraveling. We need to do something. I think that's, isn't it, Solomon? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's a biblical truth. Jesus knows his plan back then. I believe Jesus knows his plan today. My question for you is where do you need to trust it? Our ideas can go on and on. Finances, work, relationships. The directions and plans of Jesus are all located here. Where do you need to trust the plan of Jesus? Well, Mark continues. First thing he wants us to know in the midst of everyone thinking the plan's unraveling and everything's not going the way that Jesus is expecting. Number one, Jesus knows his plans. Number two, though, I want you to know Jesus knows his purpose. Look what happens. Pick up the story, verse 17. 
Mark 14, 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. While they were eating... He took some bread, and after blessing, he broke it, gave it to them, and he said, Take it, this is my body. We had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Sit, pause for a minute. A ton in that passage, and I'm going to ask, let's hit, let's deal with verses 17 through 21 in a moment. Let's jump to verse 22. See, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that Jesus, when he went to the Last Supper and he came to that Passover meal, Jesus said, I've been waiting for this. Man, how I've longed to have this moment with you. It's as if all three years has been building up for this moment. Everything that Jesus had done, everything that he had said, everything that he tried to model and live was culminating in this moment. He's letting his friends into the plan. In the midst of the Passover meal, he grabs the bread. Verse 22, while they were eating, he took some bread. That's called, that bread is known as the bread of affliction. It's unleavened bread. It has no yeast in it. And it was intended Passover because God said, I want you to have this bread. I want you to eat Passover fully clothed with your coat on, with your shoes on, with your stick in your hand, ready to go. I don't want you making bread, kneading it, letting it rise, kneading it. No, no, we got to be ready to go at a moment's notice. It's always the bread of affliction in every Passover. We eat the bread of affliction to remind us Remind us of the suffering and our readiness to follow God. So in the meal, Jesus takes the bread of affliction and he reframes it. He says, take it. This bread of affliction is my body. Is my body. Luke says, broken for you. I'm now the body, the bread of affliction. As a reminder of the suffering. Jesus says, I'm the bread of affliction. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be about the Father's business. Later that night, he'd go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he'd say, Jesus, or he'd say, Father, man, if there's any way to do this plan without me suffering and dying, I'm, I'm all for it. But not my will, God, but your will be done. Jesus takes that moment, he takes the bread of affliction, he says, okay, it's no longer about Passover, this is about me. I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. I'm clean of leaven, I'm clean of all that sin, I'm clean of all that failure, and I'm ready to be about the Father's business, and he broke it as a model and as a testimony. This is what will happen to me. 
And then he takes the cup, verse 23, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, the cup that symbolized the blood of the lamb, the blood of the sacrificial lamb that would be placed on the doorposts of the home. So this cup is no longer about that lamb. So this is my blood of the covenant. He said, we're not talking about Passover anymore. We're talking about what I'm doing. I'm the Lamb of God. This is my blood of the covenant, of the promise, of the commitment. This is my blood given for your safety, my blood given for your sins. And I wonder at that moment if they start thinking back to when Jesus was called the Lamb of God. Do you remember that? The Gospel of John has it clearly. Look at John 1. Early on in the ministry of Jesus, the next day he saw Jesus, John the Baptist, coming to him and said, behold, surprise, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's all the way at the start. I wonder if the disciples are thinking that, remembering that. He goes on again the next day. John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus and he walked and said, behold, surprise, the Lamb of God. Later in John 10, Jesus would say this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. He continues, and he says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus says, this is my decision. I've come to do this. I've come to lay down my life. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, knowing what's going to come as a result and the pure joy that's going to come after this sacrifice. Jesus says, I do this willingly with anticipation of the great things that are yet to come. And I wonder if the disciples are starting to clue in. Make no mistake, Jesus' plan isn't unraveling. Jesus' plan is just beginning. And look how he says about this. He says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. This cup, symbolic of the lamb, that you sprinkle blood on the doorposts of your home. This cup is my blood poured out for you. That term poured out means his blood was shed. His blood was emptied for your salvation. He held nothing back from this moment. I know you're used to sprinkling blood on your doorpost, Jesus says, not anymore. I've poured my life. I've emptied myself onto your broken heart. Man, there is no holding back. Jesus comes into this moment to make sure everyone understands everything that he's been building up for this moment. He came to be the lamb of sacrifice. He came to make that payment of sin so that the judgment of God will pass over you if you let it. So one last thing I want you to see. Mark wants to make sure we know just when you think the plan of Jesus is unraveling, it's not. He knows his plan and he knows his purpose. Everything has been building for this moment. He says, I long that you get it and understand it. Why? We might have this question, why? Why is it so important? Why does this have to happen? Why does everything build up to this moment? And here's the third truth Mark wants you to see. Because Jesus knows your need. Why did Jesus do it all? 
because he knows your need. Now, one of our commitments as a church is we want you to be students of the word. Now, I don't think it's the best plan for pastors to be the only one who knows how to read the Bible. I mean, the Bible's told us that we're all supposed to be students of the word, that you're supposed to check and test one another and that together we can find the truest form of what God wants. So I want to teach you a little Greek today. So just take a moment. See, there's an instrument of Greek that when there's one truth that's bookended by another truth, it's intended to draw attention to the middle one. Does that make sense? So if you have something on the outside and there's something set in the middle, the author wants you to really focus on the importance and power of the middle. And so I want to propose to you, verses 22 through 25 is the middle, it's the filling of the Oreo. Some of you just love going for the filling and you toss the cookie. But if you truly want to appreciate an Oreo, you got to get both cookies as well. Let me show you. So Mark wants to draw attention to why that moment of Jesus explaining his plan is so necessary. Look at verse 17. So again, before Jesus gets into his bread, his body being the bread and his blood being the cup, look at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him one by one, surely not I. Now, now in your Bible, surely not I has a question mark at the end, right? Because in the Greek, this is what they're saying. It's not me, is it? I mean, we know the story, so we're expecting when Jesus says, hey, one of y'all going to betray me, everyone looks at Judas. It's him. It's that guy. But no one knows. See, here's the horror of the story. Jesus says, one of you 12, my best friends, everyone who has walked with me, you loved me, you have heard my teachings, you have seen my work, one of you is going to turn from me. And every one of them starts out, nope, not me. Is it? Is it me? Every one of them knows the truth about their heart, don't they? And every one of them knows that they're just one poor choice, one mistake away from ruining everything. Have you ever had that moment in your life? Or you've recognized you're just one foolish decision away from wrecking your entire family. How many pastors have lost their entire ministry over one foolish choice? How many of you have had a broken heart, a wound in your life, because of one misspoken word, one slap of anger, one aspect of jealousy and gossip that has wounded you beyond repair. You want to know why the sacrifice of Jesus is so important that the 12 people that know him the best, each and every one of them recognized that they were at risk of turning away. And I think if we're honest, we recognize that too. And I tell you, I am committed to my wife. But I don't put myself in situations because I know I'm one stupid decision away. And Bensons are known for doing stupid stuff. I meet with elders where I'm not the only one in charge. Why? Because I know the pastors are still known to do things out of greed, selfishness, anger, 
jealousy. That's why I gather together with people I know will speak truth, who love you like I do, who love God like I do. I think there's a reality that we know in our heart, if we're honest, all of us are guilty of doing at least one stupid thing that will jeopardize our ministry and our testimony in our workplace, in our homes, in our church. Jesus says to these guys, one of you is going to be guilty of betrayal, but really you know the story. See, it's almost as if all of them could have been that guy, right? Now let's jump to the other cookie, verse 26. Again, now after he talks about the bread and the cup, verse 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away. They've already ousted Judas, and I was like, oh, phew, good. I thought it was me. It gets to the end, to the garden, and he says, you're all going to fall away. The term fall away, you are all going to leave me, betray me, turn away from me, desert me. By the way, that Greek term for fall away, scandaliso. It's where we get our word scandal. You want to know why the blood in the cup is so important? Because every one of those guys is going to create a scandal for Jesus. Just when they're like, oh, phew, it's only Judas. Good, I'm going to be fine. Nope, every one of you is going to create a scandal for me. If there's 12 people that should have stuck by Jesus, it should have been those guys. Every one of them, Jesus says, will fall away. He also quotes the prophet Zechariah, and he says, I'll strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That term scattered, they'll be discarded a great distance, thrown off with great force. They're not just lurking in the shadows. They're gone. I mean, these guys abandoned Jesus. And I love the response. Verse 29, earlier they were like, no, 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 we're fine. Look, just when you think people are going to be like, okay, Jesus, I, I know my heart. Help me. What do I do? Like right when we're expecting humility and people to come and say, please, Jesus, help me. There's a big biblical but right there. Verse 29. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. I love Peter. Peter looks around at the other 10, right? Judas is gone. He looks around at the other 10. Yeah, I can get it. Those guys scattering. I always knew James was a wimp. John, he's too sensitive. He's not going to make it. Yeah, Jesus, I get it. Those 10 might, not me. Jesus says to him, truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. And again, you're almost rooting for Peter. Peter, please, please get it. Be humble before Jesus. Jesus, help me. What do I do? But when you're expecting him to be humble, there's another big biblical but right there. Just when you're hoping and praying, come on, Peter. Peter kept saying instantly, even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Every one of them. Well, we all know the name of the, the end of the story, right? That night finishes. Huge scandal. All the disciples gone. Peter denies him three times, just like Jesus had said. You want to know why the sacrifice of Jesus is important? You have to look at the cookies. 
Every one of us is capable of horrific things. And every one of us has and will do horrific things. And that's why we have Jesus. Three years of ministry, three years of miracles, three years of power, three years of teaching, three years of authority, all culminate in this one time where Jesus tells his plan. I'm that sacrificial lamb. I've come during Passover to give my life as a sacrifice for yours. But instead of sprinkling my blood on the doorposts of your life every year, I'm just going to flood you, pour out my blood on your life, on your broken heart. Forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. Cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Transform your life and form you into an instrument, no longer a weakened vessel of sin, but an instrument of power and glory. Jesus says, that's what I came to do. I guess the question then for us, For some of you, have you received that? Have you received that sacrifice and that gift? I think there's a number of people that know about the sacrifice of Jesus, but they have yet to receive and accept it in their life. And if that's you, if you're here saying, Brian, I I don't think I've ever accepted the free gift of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, I want to help you do that. But the second question for those of you, who say, no, Brian, I have. I've accepted the gift of God. Then my question is, who do you need to share it with? Look what the Apostle Paul says. I love how he summarized it. Paul said this, I've received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He continued, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant and my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. But then look at what Paul says next. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you have accepted the sacrifice of Christ, of Christ in your life, then the question for you is, are you ready to proclaim it? Proclaim the plan and power of Jesus until he returns. That's the message of the fifth day. The plan of God is not coming unraveled. The plans of Jesus are not coming apart at the seams. They're coming together exactly as he planned. He knows his plans. He knows his purpose. And he knows your need. Have you accepted it? And if you have, will you proclaim it? That's the question for us today. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus, we're here. God, many of us, because we, we do believe in your power. We've received your mercy. We've received your grace. But God, we confess to you that so often it feels like life is becoming 
apart at the seams. It's unraveling before our eyes. We look at our homes, we look at our churches, we look at our culture, and we begin to worry that somehow you've lost control. So Jesus, I pray that you help us to see your plans as you do. You give us faith, confidence, courage. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when we feel like everything's coming apart, God, we have no fear because we know you're with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Even when we're surrounded by our enemies, you don't panic. You prepare a table before us. God, you've anointed our head with oil. Our cup overflows. So God, for those of us who know you, who have received your sacrifice, God, we pray. You give us the courage, the faith, and the boldness we need to proclaim your purpose and your plans to all who will listen. God, if those disciples needed you, and if we need you, how much more, God, those who don't even know you. God, as we prepare to do communion, God, I pray you build boldness and courage in our lives that we might be a more powerful, a brighter instrument of your glory, a reflection of your power, that people might see you in a new way. But God, I also believe there's someone here who knows perhaps of all you've done but has yet to accept it. God, they think they're too broken, too lost, too rebellious, too injured, too filled with hate, too filled with pain. God, they fear your power, your glory, your love is not enough for them. So God, I pray you open their eyes that they might see you as I do. God, open their ears that they would hear your invitation just confess their brokenness to you and allow you to cover it and heal it as you've done for so many. God, I pray you open their heart that have a humility to just lift their brokenness to you. Confess their sins, their doubts, their worries. Not just the sins that they have committed, but God, the sins that people have committed against them. They've buried them in guilt and shame. God, I pray you just give them the ability to lift those to you. And Jesus, I pray you respond as you've promised. You not only forgive them of all of their brokenness, but God, you will, Jesus, you will pay the penalty of their sin. You will wash them clean. You'll cleanse them of all unrighteousness, past, present, future. And Jesus, that you fill them with your spirit that you lead them in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, God, that you would transform those wounds and the scars that bring you glory. You transform those fears into areas of boldness and confidence. You would transform those areas of doubt. Transform them into faith. And form them into a new creation that's no longer weakened by their failure, but empowered in your spirit. Jesus, we come before you today now as we prepare to practice communion again as we do every month. God, remind us of the power and the purpose behind it. God, that we might continue to be transformed in your image, instruments of your glory, 
people of your kingdom. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen. As is the case, first of every month, if if you're a child of God, if you've received the sacrifice of Jesus on your life for the first time just today, or for the hundredth time, you're welcome at these tables. In just a moment, leaders of our church will dismiss you, and I ask you come and take the elements, either a piece of bread and a cup or some of the packs that are prepared. Take them back to your seat, and then in a moment, We'll take communion together. We'll remember the power of God as a family. As broken people who come together, who are unified together because of only one thing. That's the blood of Jesus that has created all of us in new hearts, new lives, and blended us into one family together. Let's go ahead and do that.